Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome again. If you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. Today's buzz You again? I will explain. Let me start off with one of my favorite quotes. Plus ça change, plus à la même chose. I found out that was said in 1849 by Jean-Baptiste Alphonse Carr, K-A-R-R. And I'll tell you why it's one of my favorites. Because in the early days, we had a make-for-me manufacturing model, and it was coming along just fine. And then someone named Henry Ford came on the scene. I like to say he carjacked it and launched the Any Color You Want is long as it's black and we went headlong into the mass production economy well today customers are speaking up speaking out socially vocally anywhere they can and they're calling the shots and they're saying we want make for me products we want make for me services again that's why i started off with you again but this time they want higher quality at lower prices of course they do and i should say of course we do because we're all consumers so the big question of the day is can new technologies help companies give them what they want and still find a way to make a profit because that's what business is all about i'm delighted to welcome back the same panel we had on april 24th on our series future of business with game changers when we debuted this topic the topic if you haven't guessed is the future of make for me the luxury of customer centricity and we're up to part two so let me introduce the panel let's find out the quotes they sent me for inspiration and we'll get started whitney johnson disruptive innovation facilitator is back and she says the more we give the more we have the more we let go the more we control interesting whitney johnson welcome back how are you today thank you it's a pleasure to be here Delighted. So talk to me. Interesting quote. It sounds so inspirational. I want to put it on a banner somewhere. I even want to crochet it on a a big pillow, Whitney. It's going to take a while. So tell me, where does this come from and how does this relate to our make for me economy resurgence? Well, the quote comes from me. Um, It's from a piece that I wrote recently in the Harvard Business Review. And um, I am not going to actually tell you what it means yet. I'm going to wait because I want to share a little bit more of a story, and then I'll tie it in together during, um, during the hour. Okay. I think I can stand that. I can, I've never had a guest say, wait till I'll explain my quote later, but I, I like you and I'll give you that privilege. Okay. Whitney, thank you. Great to have you back. Love the laugh. Thank you. Let's welcome thank you. back. Let's welcome second panelist, Elizabeth Hedstrom Hanlon, a senior analyst at TBR. That's technology business research. Elizabeth added a lovely member to her family since the last time we spoke to her in April. So welcome back, Elizabeth. And your quote is from E.M. Forster. So. Two cheers for democracy, one because it admits variety, and two because it permits criticism. I want to say amen to that. Elizabeth, welcome back. How are you? Thanks, Bonnie. It's always fun to be here. Wonderful. Talk to me. Interesting quote from E.M. Forster. Tell me how that relates to our topic today. I always love giving you a little bit of an off-the-beaten-path quote. I was looking at that, and I just had to laugh because the idea of the make-for-me economy, I think, really hits to the heart of democracy because everybody's got an opinion and everybody wants their opinion accounted for. And I think when you look at this market, you have the full spectrum of the folks that choose to incorporate none, some, or all of the various Mm -hmm. 
critical opinions that make it to their desks in terms of what they're putting out, what they're putting out to market. Elizabeth, who are the people who are for, forming what I call or behind this resurgence in make for me? Are they millennials? Perish the thought. Are they uh, baby boomers? Uh, my age group. Are they people somewhere in between? Who is saying, damn it, I want it, I want it now. I want it cheaper. I want it better. I want it the way I want it. Give it to me. Who is, who is leading the cry? It's funny that you say that we ha- we're having this conversation today. I was just listening to Microsoft's earnings results last night with Kelsey Mason, mm-hmm. our research analyst who helped me cover them. And I think the big takeaway uh, right now, I'm very much l- looking at the developer as one of the really key drivers of the make-for-me economy because they're the folks that have been writing the applications since the mainframe days and writing mm-hmm. them on anything and everything that they had. And now if you're looking at a world where cloud is intruding on everything and everyone. The developer is the stakeholder that all of the vendors we're tracking want to get close to. So it's all about how quickly can you pivot what you do to be agile and appeal to those developers who really are deciding for the, the end customer what platform they're going to be, they want to build on and what platform therefore gets purchased. Okay, thank you very much. Good intro to our topic. And let's welcome our third panelist. Well, coming back on the show is Reuven Gorscht. He's a global VP of customer strategy at SAP. And I have a very interesting quote. Reuven says, to understand your customers, start by knowing why you exist. Reuven Gorscht, welcome. How are you? Hey, good morning, Bonnie. Great uh, great to be here. I'm doing great. Um, Wonderful. Tell me about this quote. Interesting. Isn't this something we're supposed to do when we start a company? Isn't this company building 101? Why do you exist? Or is that fallen by the wayside, Reuben? That's a great question, Bonnie. I, I really think it's fallen by the wayside because as we grow, we, we, fail, we often fail to come back to our roots and, and, and question that. So really, when we think about the, the make-for-me economy in, in, in the context uh, that we just framed in terms of cheaper prices, better products, something that I, that I need, I, I, I think it really um, falls into something that's, that's bigger, something that's in the human aspect of uh, aligning to purpose, right? It's not necessarily just about product. You know, we went through the industrial economy. We went through the whole era of efficiency, productivity, mass production, but one thing that's really fallen by the wayside is is that business is human, right? Companies mm-hmm. don't buy from each other. Companies don't buy from companies. People buy from people. And more so, we're seeing people that are buying, um, they're, they're buying purpose. So in, as, um, as Simon Sinek uh, famously said in his TED Talk and in his books, pe- people don't buy um, why you do things or, or how you do things. They um, I'm sorry, they, they, buy, they buy why you do things, right? Not mm-hmm. what you do or how you do it, et cetera, right? So it's really coming back to those roots of business as human and uh, aligning back to a purpose. Interesting. Okay, good. And I want to go back, circle back, and uh, talk about Make For Me. We're moving very quickly here today because Whitney didn't give us the full explanation <laughs> of her quote. Whitney, we're so far ahead of time, I have to well, alert well, the engineer. I, you know what? I will try. I will, I will give you an explanation now. I'm sorry that I broke the rules and I was disruptive, that's, which I've been There are no – oh, that's right. That's what you do for a living. You are a disruptor by trade. Okay, I was going to go exactly. to what's in your cup, but let's go back to your quote. The quote is the 
the more we give, the more we have. I think I'm giving and I think I have more. The more we let go, the more we control. Whitney, I'm letting go control yeah, and turning it over yeah, to you. So just to, just to it's, very, it's very Taoist. It's from a very Chinese philosophy. And basically, when we allow people inside of our organization to become makers and we allow customers to become makers, then we allow their, their dreams to bear fruit whether Mm -hmm. we're inviting them to bring those dreams to work or we're inviting them to dream in their personal lives. And when that happens, we actually drive engagement, we drive productivity, and counterintuitively, then we control. So, again, the more we give, the more we have. The more we give um, the option for people to bring their dreams to work, the more we have. And then the more we're able to drive engagement and productivity, the more we actually control. Now, the irony of all of this is, is that when you're a real leader, once you have that power, you give it back to the customer or to the employee. But there's, there's a wonderful paradox to this that I think is actually very, very powerful. Um, so there you go. Okay. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of shades of if you love someone, set them free. If they come back, they're yours. If they don't, they never yeah. were. I'm thinking of the is, – is, is, that, is that a fair, uh, more of a popular quote that people would, would understand? It just brings to mind, let it go, and, and it will come back in spades. It will come back more. Thank you, Whitney. We have so much more to learn from you and Elizabeth and Reuben. But now I have to ask the key question of the day. Since this is Coffee Break with Game Changers, what's in your cup today or – what do you plan to drink after the show? So, Whitney Johnson, tell us where you are, what part of the country, what is the weather, and what are you drinking? Okay, I am in Boston. Um, the weather is warm, but we've had a very mild summer, uh, relatively speaking, and I have a great big bottle of water in front of me, although on occasion I like to make smoothies with uh, crushed ice and milk and peach yogurt and bananas with a little dash of cinnamon. Oh, nice. My smoothies are skim milk and ice and a little bit of fresh strawberries and a banana and sometimes a little agave syrup for sweetener. How does that sound? Oh, I'll have to check that out. Every morning. Yes, and sometimes a little cocoa, but we won't talk about that. Elizabeth, (laughs) what are you drinking today or after the show? What do you think? Bonnie knows for, I think, Bonnie, this is what, my fifth or sixth appearance on? At least. And Bonnie knows I'm a caffeine junkie. Now that I have the two little girls at home, not just the one, I'm free to mainline it again. And Whitney (laughs) knows, being in Boston with me, that it is humid as anything this morning. And so I have a nice Starbucks Trenta iced coffee sitting in front of me, which I will probably finish before the... Before the hour is out. We we need to keep that energy going. Speaking of make for me, isn't that really what Starbucks does? Step up, tell me what you want. I'll write it on the side of the cup. I'll give you a cute little saying, and I'll let you have it whatever flavor, size, variety, shape, with whip, without whip, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Isn't that part of make for me? But the question is, does everybody like the quality, and and is the price right? What do you think, Elizabeth? I'll tell you something, Bonnie. I am by. If you ask me my coffee by preference, I'm an espresso drinker. I like a very strong, very European cup of coffee, which is part Mm -hmm. of why SAP colleagues enjoy me so much and find me so very entertaining. Apparently, I drink stronger coffee than most Americans they talk to. But after my first little girl was born, I hadn't gone to Starbucks in five or six years, and I walked into Starbucks because I was desperate for caffeine. And they were the first place in months that had actually looked at me and smiled when I walked in with a child in my arms. And with one moment of the customer experience, not just the product being sold, but the experience that surrounds it, they won my business back, and they've had it for four years since. Wow. So wow. I think we- it, it just it speaks 
to the the criticality of not just what you're buying, but how you're buying it. Yes, and very good point, Elizabeth. We did a show a couple weeks ago with Anthony Leeper from SAP and Don Peppers from the Peppers and Rogers Group. I'm sure you're all familiar with him. And the title of that episode was The Frictionless Customer Experience, War Stories from the Trenches. I was filling in as almost the third person on the panel. They didn't really need a third, but I brought some of my own trenches stories. And we're talking about frictionless customer experience. So you just walked in and there it was. It was perfect, right? Exactly. Yep, that's what we're looking for. Reuven Gorsh, last but not least, of course, what drink is thou and where are you today? Hi, um, I'm in Toronto this morning and uh, glad to report the same humidity as, uh, has, has come up uh, north here as well. So uh, dressed, uh, dressed for the occasion to handle the humidity and um, actually I'm a, bit on, I'm a bit on a simplicity binge, so just really drinking a glass of water. Uh, this morning, and kind of feel that it symbolize, symbolizes some simplicity and purity. Just to not not to get too philosophical here, and um, <laughs> maybe trying to get away from ordering the drinks that take two or three minutes to describe an order. So uh, yeah, that's what I'm having this morning. Where would we be on the show if we didn't have drinks that take two or three minutes to describe, exactly. Ruben? I would. <laughs> We'd have a spare time. <laughs> We'd have a lot of spare time. We really would. So tell me, I'm going to ask, is it filtered water? Is it bottled water? Is it tap water? Is it any, any brand flavor? Give me just a little as, more information. As simple as it gets, tap water. Okay, you are you are a purist. Guess what? We are going to take our break. Yes, and we're right on time, 11.15. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We're already having a good time talking about the future of Make For Me, the luxury, and we're going to talk about that, the luxury of customer individuality part two. I'm delighted to welcome back Whitney Johnson, Elizabeth Hedstrom-Hanlon, and Reuven Gorst. We'll be right back. Don't even think of, t- you know the drill, that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Don't go too far away, Brad. Out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. You can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. Here we 
are. We're back with Whitney Johnson, Elizabeth Hedstrom-Henlin, and Reuven Gorscht. And I'm still Bonnie D. Graham. Our topic today, the future of Make For Me, the luxury of customer centricity part two. And I have to do a shout out to David Fowler, Dave to us at SAP Services for cooking up this interesting topic for his series, Future of Business with Game Changers Radio. If anybody's wondering what happened to Dave, he is getting ready to start season two in September. We're going to have... Five shows a week on the air covering seven series. No, I'm not crazy. I did the math, and I'll tell you how later on, but not right now. So let's get started with our roundtable. We're going to kick it off with Whitney Johnson, who is delighted to be a disruptor. I know that. Let's hear some disruptive thoughts. And here's Whitney's first talking point. We're going to start the first part of the conversation. She says, during the industrial and technological revolutions, people were willing to check their identities at the door for a hefty increase in pay. Hmm. Whitney, talk to me. What do we mean? Well, I mean that um, in order for people to walk into the factories and do the work, they um, basically had to become automatons. And initially, Henry Ford and the, the sort of the scions of the Industrial Revolution weren't able to get people to come into the factories. They were still very focused on that handmade sort of artisanal approach. And so what they did is they said, okay, if we're going to pay you a lot of money. So the economic incentive was so high for the individuals that they basically said, okay, I'm going to trade my identity for the pay. And, they, and thus the Industrial Revolution was, was able to happen, but it was financed by the increases in pay. Interesting. And uh, how did that work out for the working class? How did that work out for the well, people who were on the other it end? Was actually, it turned out to be a very good trade-off over, and especially for those of us who are the descendants of those folks. Um, mm-hmm. What the working class is now able to really afford products that were once were considered luxuries. And now, you know, several generations later, it turns out that the luxury we all want is the luxury of individuality. And so we as a people have this really deep sense that it's our privilege to make ourselves because we've, we've got the ability to buy everything else that we want. And the irony, of course, is that on the consumer side, we're sold dreams all the time, but then we go into work and it still clings to the metaphysical equivalent of an assembly line. And so there's this really big gap or discordance for individuals. And so as consumers, we're moving toward the make for me. And now the question is, can we move toward make for me inside of the workplace? Good points all. Um, Elizabeth, talk to me. Thoughts on what Whitney just shared? I, I love the, this topic just, in, it, just from a fundamental level because I went out to Detroit not that long ago with my husband to see his roommate from college who lives out there, and we saw the factory. I have the, I have the magnet with that quote of the customer can have any color he wants so long as it's black it's sitting black. on my refrigerator. And I think the critical, this is all about, I think, boundaries breaking down. When you look at the follow-the-sun mentality of business operations, of business execution, of the fact that, you know, know, I can be at home at 9 o'clock at night, but California is still open for business at 6 p.m., I think this idea of I want what I want when I need it in the package that I need it to have is just a natural outcropping of this I'm always on, I'm always moving universe. It's a, it's a necessary comfort step for the buyer because they need to find a way to live comfortably in this always-on-the-go universe. Okay. Reuben, thoughts? 
just absolutely uh, love what uh, where Whitney went with this in terms of you know how it manifests itself in in the workplace and again we're seeing we're we're seeing a major culture shift for companies to really start taking advantage of this make for me economy um, we live in organizations where we don't communicate to each other in human terms, in human words. We use corporate buzzwords. We live in boxes. We live in silos. We have our my job, my role, and sometimes blinders on just to hit that number, hit that KPI. So I see it as a, as a fundamental shift in order to, to really shift from the industrial economy and the industrial era to real companies that are all about service. They're all about the customer. And right back to that purpose, right? Companies that can really exhibit mm-hmm. that purpose are going to be the winners in, in, in the make-for-me economy, in my mind. So to do that, it's really shaping, um, shaping the cultures and building the cultures for the future. Thank you, Reuben. I, I want to bring up to the whole panel, before we go to one of Elizabeth's talking points, I want to bring up the fact that I left the word luxury in the title of this episode, the luxury of customer centricity. And I'd like to get each of you to to comment, please, on is luxury, we're talking about luxury items, or are we talking about a democratization of luxury, meaning to get individual treatment, to get individualized products, to get completely, I want it this way, yes, I'll be happy to give it to you this way, to have the luxury of individuality and in how we're, how products come to us and how services come to us, is that the luxury. So what's your interpretation of luxury? Let's start with Whitney and then Elizabeth and Ruben. Go ahead, Whitney. So for me, it's the latter, um, the luxury of individuality, because it, it's, there's an irony there, because I, I think we do, again, live in a country where we talk about the American dream and it, it, it fostering individuality. And there have been certain pockets of our economy, our society, where that is certainly something that is is heralded and revered and regarded and, 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 and encouraged on the consumer side. But again, I think that we don't yet have the luxury of individuality into, into the workplace. And one of the things I think concerns I think that a lot of people have is that if you do allow for individuality, if you give that luxury, that people will become less productive. And yet what mm-hmm. we found from the research is that a highly engaged workforce, the operating income increases by almost 20 percent, while low engagement leads to a 32, 33 percent decline in operating profit. And a great example of this is a company called Communispace here in Boston. And Elizabeth, you probably are familiar with them. They have this engagement policy where you get a one-month sabbatical um, once you've been there for 10 years. The CEO, Diane Hessen, took a month off to learn how to play golf, even though she was a novice. And so their engagement rate is actually 60% versus the national average of 30%. The voluntary turnover rate is up versus the national average of 25 to 30%. So in effect, by allowing people to become makers in the workplace, they have been able to raise their engagement rate, raise their productivity or their margins, um, which goes back to the thing that businesses are trying to accomplish in the first place, which is profitability. So I think there's, it, it's counterintuitive and we're not set up systemically for this to happen, but I think mm-hmm. that, as Ruben alluded to earlier, I think that shift will happen by necessity. Thank you very much, Whitney. Elizabeth, thoughts on the word luxury? Which which side are you on? The democratization of luxury. How much can I get for how how little is possible? I think, as we look at the enterprise software landscape, and you know specifically the applications database vendor cluster, 
we're seeing a relaxation in customer spending, but it is by no means anywhere near the levels it was even back in 2009, 2010, before the last major major crash. And so if you are an IT manager with a dollar to spend and you have your line of business executive looking over your shoulder with, you know, perhaps not the same level of understanding of the infrastructure that you do, they just want to see $3 of return on a dollar of spend, and they'd like to see it yesterday. It's really about what is the best I can get for good enough. Okay, thank you very much. Reuven, thoughts on luxury? We're still working on that word. Sure. Well, I, I, I don't think it's going to be a luxury anymore. I think uh, we're, we're, we're probably a few years from it becoming a core competency or a must-have for a lot of, a lot of businesses, a lot of organizations. So going back um, to, to Elizabeth's example of getting that smile, that getting that warm smile at the Starbucks mm-hmm. in terms of really changing that experience, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And, and not, not by way of fabricating smiles, etc. We're, we're going to see, again, fundamental culture changes and, and cultures that are built and, and empowered um, to, to, to really make a difference. I had um, the, the pleasure of spending last week actually uh, working with folks from Zappos, and, and as many of you know, that's really a fascinating culture. Mm-hmm. And they see themselves as really a service company that just happens to sell shoes and clothes. But truly, everything about the culture, everything they do, um, the way they treat their employees, the way they empower engagement, the way that their leadership beha- behaves uh, in terms of setting an example is really all about service. And, and that enables them to differentiate. But the big question is, how long will that last in terms of a competitive advantage? Can it be something that uh, could be replicated and eventually um, eventually scaled across other organizations? And, and I think it could eventually. Good point. I, we recently had, uh, I think, the CEO of, I'm thinking, yes, Jen Lim, uh, CEO of Delivering Happiness, which was a spinoff of the book Tony Shea wrote, and she helped him found Zappos, I believe. Very interesting. So talk about if happiness is the luxury we've all been looking for, then I think we're bringing it on full force. Just a side note there. So let's go back to our talking points. Elizabeth Hedstrom-Hanlon, I'm looking at your notes, and let's talk on the the provider side. So let's talk about when buyers are calling the shots, which is our topic today, what's a provider to do? And your answer is figure out how best to package what they do best into new solutions or narratives. Why? to ensure the customers not only realize value, but feel, and here it comes, feel loved and cared for, which is the luxury of individuality. And this brings me back to Ruben's quote about figure out what you do best, why you do it. Why does your company do it? Elizabeth, take us into this thread, please, and let's go go around the table. Absolutely. So I think in the three and a half years I've been at TBR, I think the the most interesting part of of our research has been our conversation not only with the end user but with the with the delivery partner market whether that's the ind- independent software vendor or the systems integrator and when we look at partner engagement and partner satisfaction and customer engagement and customer satisfaction without question without exception rather the thing the item that comes back highest on the list of why do you stay loyal is this idea of of, of relationship nurturing, because take the delivery partner, for example, in the end, there is never enough margin available to truly satisfy on a dollar basis, but when those partners feel that their feedback is being taken into account 
incorporated into the supplier's provider's portfolio, they stay and they make sure that that provider's cards are at the top of the deck they deal to their end customers. Likewise, when you look at a company like Workday and their constant, a lot of the cloud providers, I think, really fall into this bucket of constant revisions, constant updates. Workday makes a point of saying to the market and to the, um, to the street how many of their new features were brought to them by their customers. So mm-hmm. this idea that the customer and the delivery developer partner are an engaged part of the vendor's development cycle, selling cycle, value chain, it's as, much a, it's as much a demonstration of engagement as it is a demonstration of dollar value. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating to watch because it's just rising in importance the longer I'm in this job. Interesting. Good. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, Ruben, I know you have something to say about what Elizabeth just said. Talk to me. Thoughts and go, you can take it back also to your quote, which I just mentioned. Sure, sure. No, I, 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 I would agree um, in, in part with uh, what Elizabeth just mentioned uh, in terms of really understanding what, you know, what is it that customers do and, and essentially building that into solutions. I, I, I would just take it a step further. And, and that step further, again, is, goes back to the concept of, of humanizing the business and, and really and truly understanding how customers work in this case, how customers shop, what drives them, and, and really get that deep, uh, deep meaning behind uh, what they do and, and how, we can, um, how we can help create value, really. So it's, it's, it's about designing the customer less, and, and less about designing a solution, right? So really getting away from this whole, you know, we'll build it and they will come. It's, it's really mm-hmm. built based on what people really do and how we can help them out. So I think that's, that's, where the, that's where I see it going. So we're starting with what will bring them, what will make them come, what do they want that will draw them in the door, if you will, and then we know they'll come because we listen to them. This is a lot of listening going on here. Whitney Johnson, thoughts on what we're talking about? Yes, absolutely. One of the, one of the frameworks that um, we use a lot is this jobs-to-be-done framework and this notion that whenever you buy a product, you're actually not buying the product, but you're hiring it to do a job for you. And that job is usually, there's a functional element to that job. There's a, an emotional and social element to that job. And we especially see that investing, but in investing, but I think it, it, it's in any product or service. You know, one of the things you'll often find with an investment is you'll see, you know, a, a, a product and think this is going to have a great, it's just fantastic return. Let's say it's plus size clothing for women. And you'll watch a show like Shark Tank and you'll say, you know what, in fact, they are not interested in investing in this company, even though the returns are there. So it could be the functional job for them because it doesn't do the emotional and social job. They can't show up to their friends and say, hey, guess what? Today, I just did, if it's all men, for example, I just invested in a plus-size women's clothing company, whereas it's much more sexy and exciting to say, I just invested in a technology app that will help us detect recruiting violations for college basketball. So even in investing, you, you hire investments to do a functional job for you, giving you a return, but also an emotional job of reinforcing your identity. I think going back to Elizabeth's example, there is this functional job of you need the product to do what you need it to do, but in, a, in an environment where products are often commodities to a certain point, then the question is, is how well do you as a vendor do the emotional job? And are you off the charts from the emotional job perspective? And if you are, then you're going to get the sale and you're going to keep the customer. 
Thank you, Whitney. Uh, anybody else have anything on that point before I go to one of Ruben's talking points? I was just having a flashback to feel the dreams. If you build it, they will come. There you go. There you go. Uh, Reuven, I want to take this a little deeper on what, what we're just talking about. You offered me a second quote from Peter Drucker, and I love this one. I, I know that Whitney and Elizabeth will appreciate this. He said, the number one practical competency for success in life and work is empathy. And Reuven adds his own, we still approach customers with an aspirin looking for a headache as opposed to striving to understand the customer's context and desires. I'd like to go a little further into this empathy concept. Uh, Reuven, you want to kick this off? Sure, sure. So actually, um, interesting story. So yesterday, uh, I met with a senior executive um, that, that works at a major bank, and, and we talked about some business issues around managing and prioritizing some of the big projects and some of the port, you know, portfolios, how they manage that, etc. And one of the first questions I asked, um, because one of, the, one of the business issues that have been brought up is, is really about adoption. Are we, are we concocting too much stuff that our folks at the retail branch just cannot digest? And so one of the questions I, I, uh, I, came, I, I came back with is, is how often or how much time do your project managers or developers, et cetera, spend at a branch? And, and not spending spending it observing or, or doing their own banking, but actually spending it with employees, spending it with customers, talking to individuals in terms of what they desire, how they behave, observing, etc. And, you know, the, 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 the long and, or short answer depends how you want to take a look at it was really not much, right? And it, I would attribute that again to um, us having that lack of insight, right? We, we bake our own ideas. We, we come up with uh, what we think are, are, are incredible ideas. We design them well. And then it comes to that single point of failure, which is that human at the end of the keyboard or, or a customer, et cetera, right? So again, it comes back to the point of empathy um, to Whitney's point around really understanding what's the job to be done. And the only way you'd really understand that is by getting out there talking to your customers, talking to your employees, and unearthing some of those insights that you would never get sitting behind a desk or, um, or in the office. You know what's interesting to me, Ruben, is, is thinking about that, you know, that idea of, you know, get out of the building and go test something out. And if you're an entrepreneur and you need to find your first customer, why do you think we're so reluctant to do that? I mean, it's sort of, it, it's so obvious to all of us, and yet we don't do it. And I wonder if there's, Maybe it's. I wonder if it isn't obvious, or it is obvious, and we're just reluctant to do it because it's scary, or we're lazy, or I don't know. What sure. What do you What do you think? What was your um, contacts uh, or customers' thought on that? What's sure. Well, I, I see it actually. It, it's a really great question because it's something that I would call customer phobia. It's and it's huh. amazing to see how many of us have it, and I see it as resulting as really being outside of our comfort zone. Right. If, if we're not used to actually going out and, and just striking a dialogue with a random person on the street, asking them about how they do their banking or where, where, you know, how they'd like to buy their shoes and how they come to the purchasing decisions, et cetera. So for a lot of us, it, it, it really is outside of our bubble. If you're a project manager, you're a developer, or even if you're a senior executive, I, I think, and I've seen it, I've, I've actually seen it in, in a workshop we had last week when we actually took teams out to the mall and started to approach customers, and you could just see that level of discomfort um, in terms of, you know, what it's like to, to be able to go and connect with another human being and, and strike those, those levels of conversation. So 
uh, you know, I, I, I see it as if, if we can get out of our comfort zone and actually uh, put away our own hat and our own pride in terms of the products or services we develop, um, we'd be in a lot better shape. Interesting. Very interesting. Whitney, good, good conversation. Now, Elizabeth, any thoughts on that? Very intriguing. You know, I, I, the customer phobia thing, it, it, it strikes me, it, it, it's a fascinating concept. I think when I look at the landscape I'm currently following, there is a question of are you owning your evolution as a vendor or are you, are you allowing your customers to own you? And I think there really is a balance to be struck between taking their feedback, including them in the dialogue, but not having, not having them take all of the power and all of the control because then you end up becoming a, a almost reactive rather than proactive. It's a very, very delicate line to walk in, especially when you're looking at the size and scale of some of the vendors that I look at, IBM, SAP, Oracle, uh, Microsoft. It's, it, you're, you're, barring my favorite Larry Ellison quote, it takes time to turn a battleship. And, you know, you're trying to turn a battleship and you're trying to turn it based on a phone call that you're getting from on the shoreline saying, okay, go left. No, go left harder. Go left faster. Wait, turn right. Mm-hmm. You have to be, you have to show attentiveness without completely relinquishing control. And I think it's a fascinating balance. It is. And, yeah. and that's a, go ahead, Whitney. I want to hear you. Well, go ahead. There, there's just such an interesting duality to that. There isn't there, um, Elizabeth, because, you think about like all the management literature, you'll see all these, you know, pieces about people. You need to listen more. You need to listen more. You need to listen more. And you're like, yeah, you do need to listen more. But to your point, you also need to have a vision. You need to have an idea of where you need to go. And so there's a duality because some people are really good at listening and saying, I'll do whatever you want. And other people are saying, here's where we should go. And I, you know, I will brook no protest. And, and to be able to have both of those skill sets is very, very difficult. But what you're saying is if you do have both of those skill sets, both your your customer's going to ultimately be the happiest because sometimes they don't know and sometimes they do need mm-hmm. your vision. But sometimes they do know and you need to just listen it. But that's hard to do both, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And some, half the time I think it's the illusion of attentiveness and the illusion of listening <laughs> because you, you, you can't communicate with every customer all at once. So if you can at least illustrate that you're listening to enough of them, then the rest of them will follow along. Hmm. There think, you go. I think it's also, uh, j- just to add, it's, it's really about refining how you ask the questions and how deep do you dig, right? So if you go, you know, real example, talk, you know, talk to a, a random customer and say, well, you know, do you, do you, do you bank at this bank? And, and they'll say yes. And then you ask them, you know, what, what, do you, what do you think about the bank? And they'll say, oh, I you know, love it and you guys are great and all that. And not only only until at the point that you dig deeper, you start unearthing some of those some of those insights. Like maybe a situation has happened. Maybe they really don't. Maybe they just have a basic bank account. They've had it for years, but they don't do any other business with the bank. Right. So it, it's really about getting getting much deeper into um, how a customer behaves, what they see, what their opinions are, what influences them, etc. There's a lot more dimensions to it than just checking the box or sending a survey um, to see how satisfied or, you know, what's the net promoter score, et cetera. 
All good. Ruben. All good points. Ru- uh, Whitney, before we're getting close to break, I want to make sure you okay. you can talk go in a second, it. but I want to make sure we go to you. You had something you wanted to share with us about the Taoist Taoist concept of Wu Wei about being in a state of <laughs> flow. And we want. I want to have a little Tao lesson here from Whitney Johnson. So Whitney, before we head to break, why don't you share that with us and, and weave it into the conversation, please? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, you know, one of the things going back to this idea of engagement, whether you're a customer or or um, a vendor is this Taoist concept of wei and where you try not to try. And when you're in that wei state, um, difficult things like giving a great speech or negotiating a complex social situation, which I think is in enterprise sales, it feels very easy. And when you have this sense of wei you actually have what's called da or charismatic power. And so you don't need to say, this is how you do it and, you know, force people to follow you. They just will like you and trust you and relax around you. And so what I think is interesting is that when your generosity as, as a vendor is really sincere toward people and it's consultative selling, as well as really having a vision for where they could go, then you're going to draw people to you in effect charismatic. And I think I think that you, you know, when you're in a state of uwe, in that state of flow, you know your products, you're focused on your customer, you get the or the charismatic power. Whitney, thank you. I want to ask you a question into the whole panel. It, it's wonderful to talk about the state of flow, but when we're talking about a company that's so big, you're standing on the shore trying to tell the ship how many turns to, to go two degrees more to the north, and it's not happening quickly in anybody's lifetime. What size companies can embrace this concept of flow, can talk about the empathy that came to us in the Peter Drucker quote today, courtesy of Ruben Gorsh? Are we talking about the biggest? Are we talking about the smallest? Who is going to embrace embrace this idea that, yes, we have to get over our customer phobia? Will it be the startup that's saying, God, we got to hit the ground running. We're in a, a already co- very competitive industry, and there's no time to, to customize and no time to really ask a lot of questions. We've got to deliver. Our investors are waiting. Is it the SME on the low end, the small to midsize enterprise that that is still flexible and a little bit lean, and they can mean what they say? Is it the high-end SME? Uh, Elizabeth, you observe a lot of industries. What do you find? What companies can make this happen now, I'll say, before it's too late? What do you see? Everyone can. Everyone okay. should. Everyone needs to. Mm-hmm. Whether they do or not, at the, and what speed at which they do it, I think, is it will be the, the key lever. I mean, if you I'll, I take just something I, was, I watch in the landscape, when you see, you know, Jill Rowley leaving Oracle and, you know, this idea of social selling, it's a, that is exactly the heart of this, just one example of it. It's that attentiveness to the customer, that agility in the market. They tried it. It didn't work. I see them trying other ways to be agile at Oracle. This, that was one way that just you, I think that DNA is too, their, their selling DNA is too ingrained in who they are to try something different in that regard. But you go from that extreme to companies like Tableau, who are quick, nimble, agile, really focused on the string of pearls way of attracting customers. You talk to a couple of big ones, and, or and big and small, really, to demonstrate to the broader base, we understand you, and then growth follows. And then finally, you look at the true startups, and if they're not tied to their customers, if they're not talking to their customers, then mm-hmm. they're nowhere. So I it's essential. Reuben, Reuben, thoughts? Agree? 
Yes, I, I would uh, definitely agree, and I think it really it could be done in businesses of of all shapes and sizes. It, it really um, obviously scale, and you've got large organizations with fifty thousand, hundred thousand employees. It's much harder to to move that ship a couple degrees than you would a, a startup with two or three people. Um, but to me, again, it all it all kind of boils down to the the culture and really designing the culture, and really starts from the top starts from the, the the way that the leaders behave starts with what we focus on and and if that customer centricity that real and, and I realize I just use a buzzword so if we really have um, that that true focus on really solving the customer's need or the customer's problem and we're able to find out what that is and and satisfy that need and, and continuously create value then size really doesn't matter. But aligning the culture, aligning the folks that are in the back office, in the front line to, you know, to give you even to, to go out of their way, to give you that little smile at Starbucks, then, um, then we're, in, we're in good shape. It's the company brand, it's the company culture, and it does come from the top in terms of leadership. And when we go into the crystal ball round at the end of the show, I'm going to ask the three of you to address the leaders in companies of all sizes who will make this happen. As Elizabeth said, they need to do it. They have to do it. How fast will they do it? Uh, Whitney, I want to come back to you on what we've just been discussing uh, with Elizabeth and Ruben and get your thoughts. Two minutes before break, I'm going to give it to you. Well, I, I I loved what Elizabeth said. Every can't, everyone can, everyone should, everyone needs to. I was thinking that's a tweetable. I hope someone's tweeting it. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that regardless of the size of your company, you can. You have very very large companies that do allow their employees to really listen. Um, Zappos, you know, as Ruben pointed out earlier, I wouldn't say they're very large, but they are large. And you'll have very small companies that allow your companies to do it. But at the same time, you have very small companies that don't. Um, they may not stay in business, but still they don't. And so I do think that regardless of the company you're in, it's hard, it can be harder in a large company, but that doesn't mean that you can't as an individual. And certainly you can empower the people that work for you to do so, to really listen to your individual. So on your watch, you, you can make that happen. So, so yes, it's, it may be hard, but it's hard for different reasons depending on the size of your company. But you as an individual still have the ability and power to listen to your customers. I just tweeted it. <laughs> Thank it you was very fantastic. Much. <laughs> Good. Okay. Guess what? I'm going to give you all a break. We have 10 minutes till the end of the show. I want you all to take a sip of something refreshing when we come back. I'll ask you to look into the crystal ball. I'm sure you have it from the last time you were on SAP Game Changers Radio. Polish it off and let's see what will the status of make for me, the make for me culture, the make for me economy, where will it be? In 2020, the year of hindsight, we'll have that luxury. What about customer centricity? What about leadership? What companies will get the message loud and clear and do something about it and make a name for themselves in that way in the next six years? I'm Bonnie D. Graham. When we come back, we'll hear predictions from Whitney Johnson, Elizabeth Hedstrom-Henlon, and Reuben Gorsh. Don't even think of touching that dial. We'll be right back. Brad out. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. 
The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network you're enjoying coffee break with game changers presented by sap you can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. And we're back, and it's time for the crystal ball round. So let's start off with Whitney Johnson. Whitney, what do you see in the crystal ball? Can you take me all the way through to the year 2020? And what will the future make for me? Will it be the future will be now in 2020? What do you see? The future will be now. Uh, By 2020, the millennials are going to be firmly ensconced in the workplace, and they are expecting to bring their dreams to work, which I think is actually a very, very good thing. I'll go back to my original quote, the more we give, the more we have, the more we let go, the more we control. For Xers and Boomers, that means that we need to allow all of our employees not just our millennials, to become makers, to bring their dreams to work, which will drive engagement and productivity, and counterintuitively, again, we'll have more control. So I do think that by 2020, um, we will have made significant progress in bringing the idea of makers to work and also allowing our customers um, to continue to be makers. Okay. Thank you very much. Elizabeth Hedstrom-Hanlon, thoughts on the future? I think it's about the convergence of ecosystems, whether it's your partner ecosystem or your customer ecosystem. The cycle of develop, sell, deploy is just accelerating. And before too long, everyone is going to be sitting in the same room in the beginning, middle, and end of the process. So I think when I, when I look at the future, um, the idea of makers is what you put it. It's about how, how quickly can you break down your internal silos and your external silos to create a universe where dialogue is constant, visibility is end-to-end, and time to value is seen as constantly accelerating. Okay. And that's that, there's that acceleration again. We talked about how fast big companies can do it. Well, time to value. It's agility too, Bonnie. I think it's, it's it is agility. And, yeah. and do, who, well, I'm going to ask a bonus question when we're done with the predictions. I, and I'll tell you that in a moment. So Ruben Gorsh, talk to me about your predictions. We have plenty of time left. Go ahead, Ruben. Sure. Thanks, Bonnie. So, so to me, it's really based on three principles that successful companies will practice. And principle number one is, is know me. Second one is understand me. And the third one is connect with me on a whole new level. And, and these are really some of the key ingredients that I feel are, are the, the, the key to success in, in terms of how our economy is shaping out, how we make buying decisions, how we understand and truly understand what our consumers want to buy and, uh, and, and leverage, um, leverage our products and services. Now, to do that, 
it requires a, a really fundamental change in the way we, we do business. We have to really get out of what we know as, as silos, the silos of marketing, sales, production, etc., and really be able to rethink and reframe everything that we do, right? So if you think about marketing, I, I no longer want to receive you know, a $20 for $40 worth of sushi coupon when I don't even eat sushi, right? I, mm-hmm. I don't want to be sold to. I want to be educated. Um, I don't want a mass-produced product. I want something that meets my need at that specific time and, and, and in, in, within, this specific, within a specific context. So, so really everything, everything reshaping itself um, around that customer, around that customer insight to, to be able to know them, to understand them, and again, connect with them at, at a whole new level. Thank you, Ruben. All right, here's my bonus question to the panel. What are we going to do? What are companies going to do? What should they do about this issue of customer phobia? I quoted, I tweeted about it, and that's a comment that Ruben Gorsh made during the show. And the question is, who should be responsible in the next six years for taking a good, hard, deep look and saying we're missing that empathy that Peter Drucker talks about as a number one mantra for being successful in life and in business. We're making that extension. Who should it be? Will it be somebody rising up through the ranks? Will it be current management? Will somebody say, wait a minute, this is the era of make for me and we don't get it. We have to stop and make sure we get it. Who should be in charge of that shift? Whitney Johnson, thoughts? I I think it's, I think it, any real change has to come from the top down and the bottom up. So I think you, you need to see senior management modeling this. So they're going and spending a day with their customer, not just talking to them having dinner, but spending a day or an hour or two with the customer. I think you also um, can include it in performance reviews. You know, when was the last time you actually spent time with your customer? And then we as individuals can take that initiative on our own because every time it's going to make us better at doing our job. So a top-down, bottom-up is what I recommend, and then there's some institutionalization of the process. That's really going to drive it forward, and I think it's a great insight, Ruben. Thank you very much, and let's turn to Elizabeth Hedstrom-Henlin at TBR. Elizabeth, what are your thoughts on this? Who is going to be the person in charge for this? I agree with Whitney. It has to be both. You cannot mandate change. You cannot drive change. You can only engineer change, and that means you have to have cultural buy-in from top to bottom. It's interesting. We were, um, I had mentioned I was listening to Microsoft's earnings call last night, and their CFO was speaking very fervently about the culture of cost, uh, the culture of efficiency that each employee was empowered to really improve their own ROI, and I agree with that, but only to a point. I think there has to be not just executive attention to mandating that change, employee attention to being the engine of that change, but there has to be a collaborative support between both sides of it to allow the time, incentive, and potential of that change to take the form it needs to take rather than dictating a we will hit, you know, we will improve X by Y time frame. You know, some of this, some of this development, I think, has to be organic or risk losing the potential of innovation that can come. Great point. Thank you. And, Reuven, I'll give you about 30 seconds to wrap this up before we go to close. What are your thoughts? Sure, Who should sure. do it? So I, I really hope we don't see this as an opportunity to 
um, appoint the chief empathy officer, the chief customer insight <laughs> officer. Right? So, um, I was hoping you would say that. I wanted to hear those words. You made it come true. Go ahead. So, Keep talking. So really, I, I, I would agree with, uh, with Whitney and Elizabeth's sentiment. It's really everyone's job. Leadership needs to model it and get out there. Uh, but then everyone, every individual, no matter what role you're in, you have to get out there. Spend the time, whether if it's a metric that you have to meet or not, get out there, spend time with customers, talk to real people, make business human again. Thank you. I, I have to, just before I close, I have to tell you, I used to do stand-up comedy, and I remember meeting a very interesting comedian who was also a, a freelancer in some type of consulting, and she said she got most of her housework done every couple of weeks, amazing amount of housework done when she was faced with either mopping the floors, doing the laundry, doing the windows, cleaning out the attic or the basement, versus making that phone call to a customer or a cold call. I rest my case. There's our customer phobia live. I want to thank so much Whitney John. Elizabeth Hedstrom-Hanlon and Ruben Gorsh. You've been wonderful to speak with. I'm so delighted you joined me today. A shout-out to Dave Fowler, who thought up this topic in the first place at SAP Services. Richard Green for introducing us to Whitney. Malcolm, Malcolm Kimberlin for tweeting Brad and the Business Channel team. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. I'll be back next Tuesday with Financial Excellence with Game Changers 9 a.m. Pacific and Wednesday Coffee Break. And here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.